Good morning. Good to see you here today. Take your Bibles, turn with me if you would please to Luke chapter number 12. Luke chapter number 12. At a time when hostility toward Christians is increasing, especially as Islam uh, aggressively expands throughout our world, the words in today's text become extremely relevant. We may not be in immediate danger of execution because of our faith, but we may face economic persecution, legal persecution, and certainly the persecution of public ridicule due to our faith. Acceptable speech no longer allows talk of sin, of judgment, accountability, even of right and wrong. When we stand up for Christ, we will become a target. I fear that soon they will try to make it a hate crime to speak in any way against any kind of sinful conduct. Certainly not inconceivable that churches will be threatened at minimum with the loss of our tax exemption status if we stand against the promotion of sinful lifestyles. So how can we who are often so easily intimidated even by the slightest hostility to our Christian faith learn to live with courageous confidence? In our text today, Jesus gives his disciples then and us today lessons on how to live unafraid and unashamed. The context of Jesus' remarks is the hostility that has resulted from his rebuke of the Jewish religious leaders in the latter part of chapter 11. Jesus knew the leaders of Israel were plotting to kill him. Things were going to get rough, not just for him, but they were going to be rough for his disciples as well. These followers of Jesus were going to face persecution, and in fact, most of these men were martyred because of their faith. Look with me, if you would, please. First, you can stand unafraid and unashamed when our hearts are free from hypocrisy. Verse number one. In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled on another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have spoken in the ear and inner rooms will be proclaimed from the housetops. As Jesus continued in a general direction toward Jerusalem, vast multitudes of people came to hear him. In fact, the crowds became so large that they were, there were some who were being injured because they literally trampled on one another. At this point, Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Leaven is the yeast that works its way through dough and it makes bread rise. In the Bible, it is a common image of something small, 
that spreads silently but ultimately pervasively. Hypocrisy is like leaven in the sense that it only takes a little bit of it to affect a great mass. A little bit of hypocrisy is like a little bit of poison. Jesus told his disciples to beware of the kind of hypocrisy that characterized the Pharisees. So why were they considered hypocrites? First of all, because they wanted to look holy more than they wanted to be holy. They claimed to be devoted to the Lord, yet they manipulated God's word in order to suit their purposes and advance their own causes. They were quick to see the sins and failures of others, but seemed to be unable to see the sin in themselves. We learned two things about hypocrisy. First, hypocrisy is deliberate deception. A key idea of hypocrisy is hiding. The word hypocrite came from the idea of playing a part in a theater. The hypocrite is pretending to be something that they are not. Something I hadn't considered before, but I find interesting, is that one can not only be hypocritical by attempting to represent themselves as more righteous than they are, one can also be a hypocrite by attempting to make yourself look worse than you are to disguise your relationship with Jesus and to avoid ridicule or persecution. The problem is that most hypocrites don't realize that they are hypocrites. They have convinced themselves that they have things under control. It's difficult to see one's own addictions and weaknesses and failures. And they spend their life pretending and trying to keep others from recognizing that they are pretending. They are so convincing that they fool even themselves. The second thing we learn is that hypocrisy is foolish and pointless. Jesus says we really are going to find out that those things that were hidden will be made known. The art of being a hypocrite depends upon concealment. But one day, Jesus says, all will be revealed. We can only be hypocrites before men because we can never truly be hypocrites before God. The truth will come out. Pretenders will be exposed. It's hard living a lie. Eventually, the truth will reveal itself. Arthur Cullen Doyle of Sherlock Holmes fame used to playfully tell a made-up story about how he sent a telegram to each of 12 of his friends, all of men of great virtue and reputation and considerable position in society. The message simply said, flee at once, all is discovered. Within 24 hours, he said, all 12 had left the country. Guilt makes us afraid. Proverbs 28.1 says, the wicked flee when no one pursues. 
The translation called the message translates this verse. The wicked are edgy with guilt, ready to run off even when no one is after them. We can stand unafraid and unashamed when our heart is free from hypocrisy. And secondly, we can stand unafraid and unashamed when we fear God more than we fear people. It says in verse 4, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body and, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he has killed has the power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. The connection to the previous statement is that hypocrites will always despise and persecute the faithful. So the followers of Jesus should always be prepared to face persecution. Jesus says the worst they can do is kill you. That's a relief. I thought it was going to be bad there for a moment. Jesus says, if that is true, that we should not be afraid of people who can kill us, how much less should we be afraid of those who can scorn us? The 18th century commentator Adam Clark said, a man has but one life to lose and one soul to save. It's madness to sacrifice the salvation of the soul to, per- to the preserve the life. When Jesus says, fear him who has the power to cast into hell, he's not talking about Satan. He's talking about Almighty God. Hell is not Satan's dominion. It is his prison. Jesus says that rather than fearing those who can kill us but can do nothing further, that we should fear the one who has the authority to cast into hell. And then to emphasize an already strong point, Jesus repeats, yes, I tell you, fear him. And the word hell here is the word Gehenna, which comes from the Hebrew, and it talks about the the valley of Hinnom. In the Old Testament, the valley of Hinnom was a place of child sacrifice to the pagan god Molech. King Josiah, when he came to the throne, reformed Israel and removed and stopped sacrifice of children in the Valley of Hinnom. And later it became a garbage dump, a place where criminals' bodies were thrown to be burned. And the smoke rose perpetually as the, gro- as the garbage was slowly burned. And there was a continual stench from the smoldering fires. In the days of Jesus, it became associated with eternal fiery punishment, which is called the lake of fire in Revelation chapter 19. Thus the name hell came to be used as a description of the place of eternal torment. Mark chapter 9 verse 48 says, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. I can stand unafraid and unashamed when I fear God more than I fear people. And third, I can stand unafraid and unashamed when I trust that God knows and cares about me. Verse 6 says, Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins, and not one of them is forgotten before God? But the very hairs of your head are numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. 
I want you to note three things with me about God's love. First of all, you are of great value to God. Especially those who find themselves in persecution may come to the place that they feel like that they are worthless and no one cares for them. Yet they have a loving Heavenly Father who cares for each of them and values each of them. Jesus uses two illustrations to describe the Father's love for us. First, he speaks of sparrows. In Matthew chapter 10 and verse 29, Jesus tells us that one could buy two sparrows for one copper coin. And here we learn that five sparrows cost two copper coins. So apparently there's a discount for buying in bulk. And if Jesus says that God remembers the sparrows, even though the sparrows are of relatively little value to men, he will not forget you. So don't lose heart. Jesus says that not one of them is forgotten by the Father. And then Jesus speaks of the hairs of our head. It has been said that a redhead has about 90,000 hairs. A dark-haired person has about 120,000 hairs. And a blonde has about 144,000 hairs. I don't know what it means about gray-headed people, but it seems to be less than that. But if God knows exactly how many hairs you have, if he knows that about you, he also knows all the important things about you as well. God knows all about you, and he still loves you. He said, Paul says in Romans chapter 5, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. And then in verse 8 he says, But God demonstrated his own love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul describes the greatness of God's love. It is love given to the undeserving, to those without strength, to the ungodly, to sinners. This emphasizes the fact that the reasons for God's love are found in him, not in us. The work of Jesus on the cross for us is God's ultimate proof of his love for you. He may give additional proof to you, but he can give no further greater proof that he loves you than his willingness to give his son for you. And then you need to understand that God will never stop loving you. We might wonder, hey, what if I fail? Does God still love me when I sin? Why can't I feel God's love sometimes? When we've sinned or we've been disobedient or we've let God down, does God stop loving us? No, he doesn't stop loving us, nor does he love us any less. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the church at Rome wrote, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers present or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God's love for his children is described as everlasting. The prophet Jeremiah wrote, The Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness I have drawn you. The truth is that God's love for you is everlasting. Believe it. Receive it. 
claim it. Over whatever situation may be tormenting you, you can always know that God loves you. And he will continue to provide the peace and the inner strength that you need to keep you going until the storm is over. I can stand unafraid and unashamed when I trust that God knows and cares about me. And fourth, I can stand unafraid and unashamed when I realize that if I stand up for Jesus now, he will stand up for me later. Verse 8 says, Also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man will also confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Let me put this in modern terms. Think about it like this. If someone pretends not to know you when they are with with their friends, will you continue to think of them as your friend? No. If a person is not willing to acknowledge your friendship at all times, they are not your friend at all. In the same way, Jesus says that those who do not stand with him in public are not truly devoted to him in private. Those words are meant to make us stop and think. If a person denies Jesus before men, he states that he will deny that person before the angels of God. Now, obviously, Jesus was not saying that about a person who occasionally or one time fails by denying him. If that's what he meant, then the the apostle Peter is not in heaven. But if our way of life is to profess Christ when we're around the Christian crowd, but we deny Christ when we're around unbelievers, we're being hypocrites. Other scriptures show us that we identify with Jesus initially through baptism, when we publicly confess Jesus as our Savior and Lord. Then through both our lives and our words, we openly acknowledge that we are followers of Jesus Christ and that he has saved us by his grace apart from anything that we have done. Every Christian should live every day in light of someday standing before the one who gave his life for us. Our great hope should be that when we stand before him that day, we will hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. I'm not dealing with verse 10 in this passage because we dealt with that when we looked at chapter 11. But let me just say, Billy Graham said about this, unpardonable or unforgivable sin. No one has committed the unpardonable sin who continues to be under the disturbing, convicting, and drawing power of the Holy Spirit. When a person who has so resisted the Holy Spirit that he strives with him no more, then there is eternal danger. In other words, the unpardonable sin involves the total and irrevocable rejection of Jesus Christ. It is rejecting completely and finally the witness of the Holy Spirit, which declares that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who alone can save us from our sins. Some argue that that since it specifically involves 
attributing Jesus' miracles to Satan. It could, not, it could only be committed during Jesus' life on earth. But regardless, it seems to me that the warning scriptures is that that exact sense cannot be duplicated in our day. I, stand, I can stand unafraid and unashamed when I stand up for Jesus now, knowing that he will stand up for me later and fifth and finally. I can stand unafraid and unashamed when I trust the Holy Spirit to help me in my witness. Verse 11 says, Now when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you shall answer or what you shall say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Now let me tell you what Jesus is not saying. Students, Jesus is not saying, don't worry about studying for your tests. I'll give you the answers. He is not saying, don't worry about preparing for your sermon or for teaching your Sunday school lesson because I'll give you the right time when the time comes. The Lord does not reward laziness. As Paul writes to the church at Rome, we have an obligation to study to show ourselves approved, a workman that does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. In fact, the word answer is the word that we get our modern word apologetics from. The word means to make a defense, to give an adequate answer. In fact, just the opposite is true. We should do all that we can to be prepared, but sanctify the Lord Jesus in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. What is Jesus saying? When Jesus told his disciples to be unafraid and unashamed, he did not expect them to do it on their own strength. What Jesus is saying that in those times that we are suddenly and unexpectedly called before the courts, like Peter was in the book of Acts, or suddenly find ourselves standing before opponents of the faith, God will give us the words we need. In the times when you have a chance to testify to your faith but don't know what to say, Jesus is saying, don't panic. The Holy Spirit will give you the right words to say. With this recognition, we can respond knowing that we can have inner confidence and dependence in situations in which our faith is tested and challenged. As we examine what Jesus has said here, we cannot but come away with a recognition that Jesus is very concise and very specific about how forgiveness is attained. Our culture may say that there are many routes to God and many roads to heaven, but Jesus does not provide that option. Some argue that God does not punish eternally, but rather that those fall into punishment are destroyed And all the places in the Bible that speak of hell are just metaphors of the destruction of the soul. But a study of the passages in Revelation in chapters 20 and 22 specifically revealed that unbelievers will continue to exist 
outside the presence of God. For after judgment, a person will know without a doubt that there is a God and that they have forever missed the chance to know him. What a terror it must be to discover not only that God exists, but then after seeing God face to face, to know that the opportunity to be with him has been missed forever. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that we're living in a day in which our faith is often challenged. Challenged by our society. Challenged by those around us who do not believe. Times at which we're told we're just being intolerant and narrow-minded. But we cannot but stand on what your word says. And so, Lord, help us. Help us to be workmen who show ourselves approved, who are willing to spend time in your word and learn what your word says and then to stand on that word. Father, if there's one here today that has not yet placed their faith and trust in you, it is our fervent prayer today that they would right now in this place at this time turn to you in repentance and say, Lord, I know I failed. I know that I have sin and that sin separates me from you who are a holy God. Father, I repent of that sin and I ask, Lord, that you'd forgive me and that you would cleanse me and you would give me a place in your kingdom of heaven. And Lord, we know that you will answer that prayer. And for those of us who are saved, we know that in the past we have placed our faith and trust in you and we have been forgiven of our sins and we stand forgiven. Help us, Lord, to apply the principles that we've seen today in your word so that we might stand unafraid and unashamed, that we might be witnesses for you in the lives that we live and in the words that we speak. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.